Okay. All right. Welcome, everyone, to Seminar 110, The Commentary. Um, I always make it sound like it's some kind of incredible, like, movie cinematic kind of thing. But uh, I'm Adam Blanford. I am the uh, director for Seminar, also the uh, credits announcer and transcriptionist and a whole host of other stuff. Um, I need to raise. Uh, but joining me this, this <laughs> evening are uh, Cole Kozloff. Hello. And Logan Rapp. Hey, how you all doing? So uh, we're going to be talking about the wonderful shorts that you two have written. Uh, right now, we're running through the, the first part of seminar, the, uh, the intro. Um, I don't know who this guy is, but he sounds incredibly handsome. Uh, <laughs> oh, hey, where's VC? He usually does these with us. Well, VC, I, I couldn't get a hold of him. So I guess he just was was not available. And yes. you know, it happens. That's, tru that's troubling. Yeah. It happens. I mean, that's mm. usually happens when uh, I end up in a uh, social situation. The the cool people go, well, I got to be somewhere else. Oh, <laughs> hey, thanks. I'm not offended. <laughs> I, uh, 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 that worked in, in multiple directions. <laughs> Well, I chose to take offense in this direction. <laughs> so yeah, uh, VC wrote the uh, the rapper scripts. So a uh, seminar is a an over has an overarching rapper um, that uh, takes place in the distant future. And uh, right now we are listening to Sarah Palmero and uh, Faye Holiday. They're voicing their the parts of Lemon and Grill, respectively. And right now they are perpetrating a heist to try to liberate Thomas, who is being threatened, whose existence is being threatened by uh, the uh, intergalactic school that uh, New is teaching at. Um, is it is it is it Lemon or Grill, which who who you modulated? Because one of these voices, I hope, is very severely modulated. Yes. Uh, so Lemon is modulated. Um, I, okay. As a technical note, I, I took Sarah's voice. Sarah can speak really fast and really, really clearly at yeah. that speed. Um, but what I what I did was just sped up the voice about twenty percent, and it created okay. a really nice kind of rhythm. And uh, I, I really liked it. It sounded kind of yeah, and fun. I don't want to spoil anything for later, but we we talk about what's modulated and what isn't. Yep. So now we are in checkout morality. Which was written by Logan. Yes, sir. So, Logan, uh, you want to tell me about your uh, tell me about this whole thing? Well, uh, it, it started out of a uh, a real life situation where I was completely uh, low on funds, and you know, doing you know what you have to do to survive when you know you have uh, very very little actual capital to your name. Mm -hmm. And and then, you know, telling someone about that and being scolded about it. And and I went, well, that, that's absolutely asinine. And my, you know, the first thing that you hear when it's about shoplifting is, you know, I know I know who it affects. It doesn't affect, the, you know, the fat cats. It affects the workers. I was like, where the hell did you hear that? And they're like, that's just, you know, that's you know, it basically just it was common knowledge is, is what I'm being told. And. Mm -hmm. You know, typically, you know, common knowledge that is uh, pointed in the direction of not doing anything that hurts major corporations tends to actually come from said corporations. And so I, I went on a hunt to go, where exactly is it shown that shoplifting actively hurts workers? Uh -huh. And 
all I found were exactly what it says in in the show. Spoiler alert is that uh, it's just some op eds from people who are paid by these industries to just say that it does. And uh-huh. and any, you know, real studies of it can't ever prove anything other than, yeah, shoplifting is about equivalent to wage theft. You know, and even and in many cases, wage theft is actually a bigger problem for the workers um, Mm -hmm. than uh, shoplifting is for the companies. Because, uh, well, you know, you know, if you go to any anyone who's worked at a GameStop can tell you, yeah, we have a percentage of our inventory that we just assume is going to get straight up cribbed out of there. And we are still a profitable company like we we still are doing just fine and so that kind of put me on my you know uh journey of exploration of hey what other bullshit have we been told uh (laughs) to protect people who are way better off than all of us and and that that took me to some many uh fun uh uh not revelations, but many, many fun little corners of, you know, uh, late stage capitalism. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I found it a really fascinating read when I was when I was going through them on my preliminary reads to try and block out how to set up each each uh, segment of the short. And um, I, the guy really spoke with a with the voice of truth. And, you know, you could tell that there was, you know, the, there was reality behind this. I mean, and anger. So, a lot of yeah. anger goes behind yeah. this. You know, one of the things um, that really drove me up the wall was, you know, after the um, the uprising in the summer of 2020, mm-hmm. um, people have, you know, especially in Los Angeles, have, you know, generally become a lot more mindful of the strictures that are in our society. So, you know, one such thing is... People are consistently shocked when, you know, I tell them, you know, grocery stores throw out just massive amounts of edible food every day. Right. Mm-hmm. And they go, well, they they should give them, you know, to, you know, homeless people. Like, why? Why don't you go out there? And I go, well, why don't you go out there and pick it up and like, you know, set up a community pantry? And I And I have to tell them we try that and they call the police on us and the cops will go up there and stop people from dumpster diving to get wow. food for the unhoused. They literally send police to protect property that they are throwing away that is rotting. And if that, you know, isn't a metaphor for our current society, I really don't know what is. It, it really from there you can kind of extrapolate how, you know, we have such abundance in, you know, this nation, but also such extreme brutal poverty uh-huh. and so you know for me you know especially when it comes from you know stealing you know quote unquote stealing from a place called you know i use fresh co but i think we all know what uh <laughs> high-tech grocery store we're talking about here yep uh but for me i you know i i certainly see you know no you know, moral problems here, even if there are legal problems, because, you know, quite literally, I know how much 
they throw out and you can see, you know, at their, you know, at in these, you know, salad bars that are at, you know, your, your Gelson's or your Ralph's or whatever the hell you see a lot of food that, you know, is just spoiling right there. And they will, they will acquire absolutely no money from it. And they lose no money when you know if anyone were to use that for free but uh, because they want to create artificial scarcity then you know that that helps their bottom line and uh, so you know obviously i am not about that yep yeah i i, I thought that this whole story really it really told it really talked about or addressed a, a social problem and it it really it really it kind of spoke to me. I was like, wow, I didn't even think about that myself, but this is absolutely right. Maybe we should eat the rich. Yeah. I, it really is something, you know, when, when I talk about that and, you know, little, you know, and, 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 and sprinkling little things throughout, like, you know, talking about, you know, why, why X innovation and not Y innovation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it has, you know, with the, the shopping carts, you know, we, at, at, you know, some of these places with these high tech shopping carts, they still have that crazy wheel. And, yep. you know, the, the the problem is that they use four wheels. Yep. But if you use three wheels, it would be completely fine. It, it, you would be able to create a uh, much more consistent balance. But because that isn't a quote unquote sexy innovation, mm-hmm. then nobody does it because it, it's not about, you know, what what tools you're actually building for society it is what is this thing that i can build that is that would make me popular at a party Mm -hmm. and what you know what cool new app can i make that will you know get you know some sort of virality in the media and it's and that's you know why i always you know go back to you know how many times have we seen you know certain billionaires try to create you know this whole new mode of transportation and if we just built more trains it would put them all out of business yep it's we've already built the things that work we see them you know expanded in other countries uh and we absolutely refuse to do that ourselves and then we claim that we're the more advanced society (laughs) there's kind of an arrogance there very much so one of the greatest summations of, of late stage capitalism I ever saw, I forget who said it, and they said, the billionaires investing in space travel don't want Star Trek, they want Doom. Yep. Yeah. That's and so yeah. that is absolutely right. I'm like, oh, good. This is a horrifying future we're hurling towards. And a, uh, a message, you know, part of the messaging in the uh, WGA strike that has um, kind of come out recently. And it's also coming through, you know, Twitter and social media, because um, I'm on more of the obviously leftist shitpost side of of the internet. Is um, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's you know, our our dreams were to uh, have robots do all of the menial labor so that we could all be artists, and the robots that we're building are to be artists so that we can all do the menial labor. Yep. And, you know, that that is that backwards thinking. And 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 it's it, if you define why they're doing it, you know, if you describe it as, you know, it's just ego, 
then all of those quote unquote innovations start to make sense. Why do they want, you know, uh, an AI to generate, you know, a novel or a script and mm -hmm. it's because they are incapable of doing it themselves. And so they want to prove that, you know, they're better than, than artists. It's, it's all ego. And so they're, yep. you know, they're willing to strip out the humanity of yep. our society. Cause what, what makes us more human than our art? Yep. And they want to strip all of that out so that we can go get back to work and, yep. you know, justify their um, office buildings that no one ever occupies anymore because we're all working from home. Yep. And this isn't even a new thing. The first no. scene in the player from, I think, 1988 is Robert Gallagher saying how we don't need screenwriters. We can do it ourselves. Yeah, you know, since time immemorial, there's always been, you know, somebody with, you know, an abundance of resources angry that people don't love them. That's the thing that always gets me with, you know, folks like, you know, I'll, I'll just say his name, Elon Musk. You know, it, it's not that he is an asshole. It is that he is, he is. an asshole. No, no, it's not just <laughs> that he is an asshole. He is that. But it is that he is an asshole who demands that you love him and that you can, is you can do I, that yeah <laughs> he he is just it, it is always the it's not just that they do the things that hurt us it is that they want us to agree that it is the right thing to do instead of just doing what you want i can at least like respect that in a know your enemy kind of thing but they also want me to be their best friend and yeah. to, you know, cheer them on. And it's like, no, dude, I'm not going to fucking do that. There's uh, like, kiss my ass. There's a great uh, quote from Star Trek uh, where basically uh, the, uh, the I think it was Gold Ducati. He said, uh, true victory is convincing their, your enemy that they were wrong to oppose you in the first place. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, um, but just to, it's I, the I most Cardassian saying ever. Yes. I will say that that your short spoke to me about the shopping cart because every time I go to the store, I pick the shopping cart with the crappy wheel. Oh, every, yeah. every time. Oh, I don't yeah. think you could not. I and you know, depending on where you go, they're all for the crap. They all got the crappy wheel, but you know, it, it's it, it's such a simple thing. That's the thing that always gets me. It's such a simple thing that we have talked about. Yep, we have discussed this, but because of the the nature of mass production and the the processes that have been in place for decades, people just don't want to change it because that would be, you know, a major upfront cost for what might be a gentle uh profit. Yep. And it's not it's not even about profit anymore. It's not even about, you know, making more money than you spent. It's about growing. Now you have to make more money than you spent, more so than you did the previous year. This is why we're seeing so much um, turnover right now with our streaming services. You know, why why is Netflix, you know, putting the squeeze on customers by, you know, messing with password sharing? Well, it's because of growth. It's yeah. not because they're not profitable. They're making plenty of money. It's that they are running out of runway to grow because they are growing faster than we can create people to view and consume their product. So now they have to essentially 
create zones of growth. Mm-hmm. So now they're like, well, no more password sharing because now we need all of you to subscribe because we're out of people to push to subscribe. We are reaching market saturation. Which is an explicit 180 from what Reed Hastings was saying five, 10 years ago when he said, we don't care about password sharing because those people were never going to be customers anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and Reed Hastings, you know, also said that Prop 22 wasn't going to put the squeeze on Uber and Lyft drivers. And well, so <laughs> I whenever whenever he or uh, or Ted say anything, you know, it's always kind of, uh, oh, I can tell you're telling on yourself, but not in the way you think kind of way. <laughs> they always <laughs> They always tell on themselves and, you know, they, they also don't want you to know what it is they do. Like one of the things about the writer's strike is that, you know, uh, residuals on streamers have are, are non-existent. And part of that is because we don't know the viewership numbers, which from day one, Netflix has said, no, you don't get to know our viewership. numbers. But, but we paid you more up front. Exactly. So, which they didn't. But which they, didn't. <laughs> they also lie about that. They didn't. <laughs> and. Excuse me, but you know it, it's whenever you know that, that and this goes you know back to you know the basics of you know the foundation of checkout morality is you know when whenever I hear something that is ostensibly in defense of you know these major conglomerates, but trying to cloak it in you know protecting the workers, my first question is, all right, who wrote that bullshit? And I start going down the line. Yeah, I I, I grew up as a journalist first. And so I'm always just going, all right, take me down the thread. Who said that? Oh, well, this person said that. Okay, who told them that? And you go down the line and eventually you find yourself uh, in these trade magazines for grocers, for supermarkets. It's like, oh, yeah, they they paid for propaganda. And, you know, it, it is the, the big lie technique, something that America has really gotten good at. And it is repeating that same lie over and over and over again until people are repeating it and they don't even know where they heard it. They just, you know, assume that, you know, someone they trust told them, therefore they have you know some sort of moral high ground and they don't realize that really they're just defending people who are actively working to remove remove all of humanity from their workforce yep it's like what is the purpose of that smart card if not to get rid of checkout clerks what you know they tried to do it with self-checkout but that didn't quite do it yep and you know at the end of the day it is if a corporation tells you something just never trust it Ever. Yep. Hey, you're you're okay. talking to your friendly neighborhood Marxist man. I'm I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we got to jump into the next short. So, uh, the, I have to say, checkout morality was really fascinating. I I really enjoyed listening to it, reading it, and mixing it. Um, and so now we are in so like awaking, which Cole wrote. Uh, this was a very unique entry in uh, in seminar because this was a this was one actress essentially carrying the load with just short little interstitial pieces with a, with an AI. So Cole, do you want to tell us about the, uh, or uh, about the, uh, about the story? Um, well, structurally, I, I wanted to try and see if I could do this, if I could tell 
a, a one person drama, you know? And I, I got on the sort of uh, <laughs> the voicemail ID idea, which is basically what she's doing um, as, as a way that would fit the form and could also have just one person sustain it the whole time. And then that leads to the sort of interesting kind of, okay, well, how do you actually tell a story through voicemail? Yeah. Um, and it turns out you have to do it indirectly a lot, unless you want to have, you know, um, I've always said any line of dialogue that begins with the words, as you know, is bad dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you're, you're, that's you telling your audience something just basically upfront. And I, I can't do that. So you end up having a lot of illusion, um, a lot of sort of having to leave breadcrumbs so you can get to it. Um, it's almost epistolary. It's, it's, well, it's, that's not surprising. One of my absolute favorite books is, is Dracula by Bram Stoker, which is I was just the, the, say. the great epistolary novel. Um, but then at least is, is someone, all the letters is, is Jonathan or Quincy telling someone what happened, you know? Um, and so, and, and they're all in this story together. So there's some reasonable way for them to sort of be more descriptive about, about what ends up being plot. Um, I really didn't want to do that. Um, and in in places, I feel like it almost didn't work. Like the only way to do the passage of time I did was those date things. And I don't, it was after I had set it off, I realized, I don't think anybody's going to go back and like write down the dates and see how much time has passed. Um, so I, 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 it alludes to it a couple of times. Yep. But, um, but no, it was, it, it, it started out as, uh, as a fun, but difficult writing exercise. And uh, once I sort of twigged to how I wanted to structure it, um, then uh, if you've heard the story, uh, the search for the story goes someplace very, very dark. Um, so this is all stuff that happened to me. Uh, I, I lost a very good friend a couple of years ago and have struggled with it a long time. Everything happens up until the point where she starts making her own heroin. I haven't tried that yet. That's it's I I learned. I learned a lot about how to make heroin uh, doing the research um, for the, 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 the the botanist part of the story. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a city person. I, 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 I've killed every plant I've ever had. I am, I am not knowledge about stuff and going into Mm -hmm. this, my knowledge of like, pharmacology and botany was heroin comes from poppies and and <laughs> and i knew that nightshade came from belladonna's because of casino royale and that was about it um so i, I got to do a lot of cool research about all the horrible things plants can do to you if you if you ingest them and um, the only the only reason i know that heroin comes from poppies is just because i watched that episode of seinfeld <laughs> sure sure um so no, so the, it's it, it went to that place. Um, I'm not gonna lie to you, writing this was not a whole lot of fun once I really got into it. Because yep. like uh, Brian Michael Bendis, who when he's not writing is, is teaching writers. Uh, one of his things is is write your pain, 
you know, yeah. and and I, I found that it did help. Um, you know, a, a lot of other things helped. A lot of, you know, other people and, and psychotherapy and the usual stuff. But it, it turned out that writing it down helped. And I, I don't see myself going the way Maria does. But, I mean, when, when you're in the bottom of it, it's really hard to see a way out. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know how it plays that last tape that she sends to her sister, in my head, like writing it and reading it, it is very obvious that she knows what's going to happen, that she yep. is lying to herself about the end mm -hmm. of this. Yep. Um, but I thought that there also still had to be this some sliver of maybe she's right, maybe she's telling the truth both to her sister and to herself. And, you know, she's going to be not all right if she wakes up the next day. But she will wake up the next day, and yep. I've, I think we've talked. I, I hate I can't shake this thematic thing. ambiguity. I don't mind. I don't mind narrative ambiguity. Like um, the classic example I give is the end of the wrestler, the Darren Aronofsky film, yep. when he jumps off the top rope and then freeze frame in midair, and it doesn't actually matter what happens when he lands because the the choice to do that is the end of his story. You know, yep. and. I, I was not consciously aping that here, but I thought like her decision to 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 do this was once she does that, it sort of doesn't matter what happens to her the next day. Yeah, I mean, she definitely made up her mind, and her her decision is, for all intents and purposes, irrevocable. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's. It's tough when you're in that place where you're, you're in so much pain you can't see a way out. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Plus and, isolation and, and not actually being able to have any human contact, it doesn't pull you out of it. So it's that, that, was, uh, that is a very literalized thing. Um, my friend died on March 7th, 2020. So then we mm -hmm. get it. Um, I remember she passed away on a Friday. And we had gone inside on the Sunday before that. So I, I did the entire first year of, of, of processing and grieving alone in my house. Mm -hmm. um, we, we got to have a funeral. And I said, you haven't lived until you've been to a funeral where nobody can touch each other. It's, it, was, it was one of the last funerals the church had. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was very surreal. To being in there standing 50 feet from everyone because we didn't know anything back then yeah you know we we it was it was air would kill you so yep it was very strange and that was and that i sort of latched on to as oh let's really really isolate her somewhere out in deep space and basically force her to to deal with this on her own um Part of which is by way of saying you can't do it on your own. Yep. You know, just that's one of the things I, I learned working through this and processing this all these years is that you you can't brute force it. You can't get yourself through it. You need yep. somebody else. Yeah, and I hope it came through in the story. It did. 
It did. How anybody survives being... it reminds me i i just finished the uh the novel a memory called empire and one little wrinkle in in that uh novel was uh you know there's a whole society of people living on a station and then there was just this little just undercurrent of oh no we invest heavily in psychotherapy because we are all living on a station we are still human beings who need massive amounts of psychotherapy to deal with that isolation of being, you know, on a station that really shouldn't exist. It is not built for, you know, humans in their natural habitat. And, you know, because we are, you know, natural social people or social animals. And you just you, you have to have that connection in order to survive. It is as important as air. Yep. Yeah, you, I, I distinctly remember when I was a kid watching Next Generation going, why is there a counselor on this ship? Who cares? And then as I got into my older and I learned about like living Problem. in a social group and especially living in isolation, you're like, oh, that's why the ship's counselor sits, sits on the bridge next to the captain because she's the one who holds this insane community out in the middle of nowhere together. Yeah. Though, so if you look at the size comparison stuff on YouTube, you find the enterprise is absolutely friggin' massive. So, like, people per well, there should probably be four or five. Like, like I mean, it, it's huge. Four or five like, a deck. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like if you spread them all out, you could wander for a couple hours and not run into anyone. So, I mean, it's a massive city in space, but it still feels small after all that time. And, and you still want to go crazy, like seeing the same people a day in and day out for years. So that's absolutely, uh, it's absolutely true. And you know, a, a buddy of mine was in the Navy. I don't know how he does it because they would, they would do patrols that lasted for months yep. at a port and not just away from your family and away from your life, just in that floating metal box with nothing else for months at a time i don't i don't know how they don't all go crazy uh, i don't know yeah a friend of mine uh was uh on a nuclear sub and you know that's intense and the guy was like six two and i still Ooh, that's close I, to the limit i believe yeah he was very very close to the limit he's a tall guy you know at least relative to me and I was just like, how did you not lose it? And he goes, oh, I did multiple times. <laughs> oh, oh <laughs> like, good. Oh, that's oh, oh, oh on a nuclear that's cell. Hard, that's man. healthy. OK, great, 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 that's... great, great, great. Now you know why there's two keys for the missiles. Yes. I must have been wrong about that. So what I'll, I'll say about this is that this as, as a uh, as a sound designer, this particular episode was very challenging because it takes place in one in one room, essentially one location over a long period of time. And so I, I really ended up leaning into different effects. Um, our computer voice was actually not not an effect um, that was actually done by the actor himself. That's one of the reasons I cast him was because he was able to do that kind of synthetic voice just naturally. And so um, now that's talent. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. And actually, I almost got in trouble with with uh, with with Tilly, the executive producer, because she asked me whether or not I was using text to speech software. And I was like, no, no, that's just that's just him. That's just Chris Bazo. And uh, 
And then for the rest of this episode, I was really leaning heavily into the music because that music was trying to convey that emotional context and how she was feeling so that, you know, she's not just speaking out in the void. Like there's that backdrop kind of propelling her along. I was asleep last night and I was having this dream. definitely has some issues. I was sitting in my old car, that blue thing mom and dad made us all drive. I was sitting in that car, in that U-shaped driveway out in front of the building. She has such texture to her voice. Remember? Yes, that's Margaret Ashley. Uh, She's she's an actress. I I think she's done some Doctor Who stuff, like with the Doctor Who audio dramas and stuff. Um, actually maybe with big finish and uh, just really talented I needed someone a heavy hitter for this to really carry that um, carry this this episode because all by yourself you've got to have every emotional beat on point or it's not going to work mm-hmm. and I will say there there were a couple of very talented people Kat Peterson who voiced it Taryn in Checkout Morality um I didn't realize she wasn't British. I heard her audition first for this voice, for this character. I thought she was British. So good. And I, and I was sitting there trying to figure out if I could somehow cheat and have a flashback so that they could both voice the character. But there's only so much artistic license I'm allowed as a director. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I've been shouting into mute for the last like five minutes. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize I had to explicitly click the join audio button. Oops. Yeah. And she gave me that look where she tilts her head and looks over. Well, hey, it's good to hear from me again. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> I'm sitting here. I'm like, are these guys just ignoring me? Or are they all getting a drink or something? Or And then I saw the little join audio. Like, oh, okay, thanks. Thanks, Phil. Yeah, I was, I, I was just talking about the music and about the, uh, you know, leaning into the music to really propel the, the, uh, the story along, kind of show how she's feeling and then. We talked about the fact Chris Bazo was the uh, the AI voice and doing that kind of. Oh yeah, I had, I had wanted to talk about that when we got back. Yeah. It was we so cool. How I've been feeling. We talked a lot about that. I told her. I told yes, from earlier, the the modulated voice. When I first heard it, I assumed it was like a text to speech or something. And then you had told me, "Oh no, this is a person who did that." I was I was astonished. Yeah, because they they I've I've got audio where they're coughing and kind of giving different kind of things that that really show that that it hasn't been processed. I gave her a piece of my mind. If it has been processed, then I need to turn in my director card. But it really sounded all like it was it was his voice naturally. He was doing this, so it was really cool. And I, I thought it was that's cool that. that's awesome. Now I will say to the listeners at home, if you submit an audition for an AI voice or some kind of robot. Do not filter your voices because I do not like that. I will not cast you if you filter the you put put filters on your voice to modulate it, and make it sound robotic. Because that's my job, and that's you know I I have a certain idea and a certain vision, and I want to do those things, and I don't want those changed by something that you're doing. I can't hear what you are, so I can add you into the in the whole story. So yeah, they're they're not looking for a plug-in, they're looking for a person. Yep. Yep. And I, I'm I'm sorry, Adam. Did I come in and hear you say that this actor is not British? So um what I what I was saying originally is that uh so Kat Peterson, who uh voiced the character Taryn in Checkout Morality. 
Oh, okay, okay. I I didn't. Uh, so Cat Peterson and I've been in a ton of productions together, though I've no I know her under a different different name. Um, but uh, when she auditioned for Maria, she used a British accent, and I didn't realize she wasn't British. Um, she's okay. Canadian, but um, she, I I didn't realize her accent was so flawless. I was like, damn, this is really good. Is there some way I can make a flashback so they can both be Maria? Yeah. And I could because obviously it's your vision and I can't rewrite the whole damn thing. And, you know, so. Well, it's funny because I, I, I first heard it when, when you sent it to me and I I heard the accent and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And, and that was not at all how I had heard it in my head. Um, But then I'm listening to like, Oh no, she actually does have a British accent um, with a couple weird Philadelphia colloquialism thrown into it. But um, I, I, I actually like sort of stopped the playback and had to like think about it. And once I got back into it, I was like, no, this absolutely works. What a, what a, what a great choice. I, I really liked it. I, I, you, know, I, you, you need someone who can really carry a scene all on their own and hit those emotional beats right on point, right on time. And, you know, it, if you don't have that, then the whole experiment doesn't work. And so, you know, I, I felt like Margaret had that presence that really yeah. kind of hold it all together and, and keep it going. And so it, all, and, it came out really well. I mean, and, in its original form, um, this, this the speeches were, were pages long. And, and one of the things that, that you and Tilly had said is we, is we can't do that. We have to give actors not that much in one chunk just because we're recording. Yep. Um, and A, so then that became, after the writing of it, this thing of, okay, how do I sort of add breaths to this where we can break it up? Yep. Um, and you listen, I've listened to it a couple of times. You cannot tell that these speeches that go on for minutes are not a single take. The, 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 the editing is, is absolutely seamless and it's amazing. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, they... The great thing about the, you know, for, for, from a production aspect, it, it helps us when we have all these lines broken up and, um, and they're numbered because then we can kind of slot them in and drag everything around. And then we've got mm-hmm. everything assembled in most of a puzzle. And then we do the takes we want and we pull it all together and then it's ready to go. And um, it, I found that it, it really worked well in this instance. And, you know, mainly because she's saying, you know, she's the only one speaking really. So, and you know, line after line after line, you know, kind of all together. Yeah. But um, everything works really well. And and you're right; it, it's really hard to give people large chunks of dialogue. I even told um, we tend to shy away from that just because it's harder for them to record. Yeah. I'm not sure how many takes they should do. My research is going well, though. <laughs> One of the beauties of sci-fi in an audio medium is that there's always, you know, in science fiction, there's always something making noise. There's always some crinkle tinkle that you can kind of break up the the monotony, for lack of a better term. I, I was actually searching for stuff because Adam will tell you. The stage directions in this are the same two stage directions over and over and over again. It's the <laughs> click, then the hum. Yep. And even even writing it, I was like, this is this is getting kind of boring. We, that, that's, that's how I came up with the idea of the AI voice, literally just so we could have 
something else, another another sound other than Maria talking and a click and a hum. Yep. Um, the hum was perfect, by the way. Thank you. That is exactly what it sounded like when I was thinking about that. <laughs> well, you know, I, I uh, we, the constant air in the background was just my air conditioner, and then I I think I got I, I think I actually the switch was my so my dad. Um, left me all his tools when he passed away and one of them is this like 40 year old trouble light and uh so i held it up near the mic and i clicked it and so that click worked really well so thanks dad wherever you are for helping me with my full nice. nice fully work yeah and so it all it all came together really well so you know if you don't if you don't have a sound you make one and then everything everything works really well so um the, the real trick was just kind of making it that kind of rough kind of cobbled together sound because she's she's literally like built this thing and is trying is recording and all that and it's all jury rigged and you know kind of giving her that kind of kind of crazy you know uh, uh scotty-esque or you know like miracle worker kind of thing she's trying to put all this stuff yeah when, she can record. when i was listening to it i'm, I'm sort of what said the technology for something in deep space seems very primitive you know like this is single pole switches and you know, making yep. making air conditioning vents and stuff. It's very like Logan's run in its sort of view of the far future. Well, I mean, it's like with the, you know, one thing I love to, one fact what I love to pull out is that uh, our cell phones are more powerful than the Apollo spacecraft. Mm -hmm. It has more computing power yes. than anything Apollo could ever do. Yes. And uh, and so that was kind of what, what I thought about was that, you know, this is still pretty, it's pretty budget based because it's a corporation and they're cheap. But then, you know, the future doesn't have to have all touch screens and, you know, perfect AI and all that. She's she's making this up as she goes along, partially just to keep herself sane because she has nothing else to do. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I, it's like I remember reading when they were in the early stages of, of planning a Mars mission. This is like 20 years ago when they started talking about it, that sending a pound of mass to Mars requires a ton of fuel. I mean, yep. literally 2,000 pounds of fuel. So the, I, I learned very quickly that in terms of space travel, they will do whatever is the lightest. Yep. And that'll still hold up to, you know, radiation and thrust. Yep. Um Somebody I remember talking. They were, they were working on making dentists' tools that were not made of like stainless steel because you need a dentist in space, but you also need a, whatever that horrible hook-shaped thing is to weigh a tenth of what it weighs now. Yep. Just you wait. I'll be sure to tell her about you. Space dentist. It's a good job. There's the next science fiction podcast. Space dentist. Uh, you can have that one. I'm, 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 I'm good. Uh, I'm just saying. Yeah, somebody I, I, I just got back from the dentist today, so <laughs> I'm, I'm a little, little triggered. Sorry, space dentist. Oh my god. Somebody. Somebody has to do it. You say ah. Somebody does have to do it. Oh god. Unread message. Yeah, and then, and then this, this um. This, uh, I will fully credit, this was actually Tilly's idea, the end. Yep. Um, I just had it, I think it was, she just signed off, and, uh, and and Tilly's note, because Tilly's notes are always great, was, we need to know what happens at the end, um, yep. even if it's not, like, you know, my initial idea was, like, somebody showing up, and then I said, no, that's terrible. Um, yeah. 
because that's like the like the end of the mist. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. The uh, I think it's actually only in the director's cut where spoiler for a Twitter movie. He kills everybody, and the army shows up literally a minute later. Like I, I, I didn't want to do that. Yeah, well, it, it, yeah, it's the, it's like showing the people who found the footage. You, you, you don't want to do that. It, it ruins that mystique. So, I, I thought it was really kind of haunting in that way, just having that going. And uh, there was, I thought it was perfect. It was a great ending. Cool. Thank you. I also loved in the in the in the bumper between stories when Lemon and Grill are talking, and basically the intro is. You thought that was fucked up. Listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I heard it, I was like, oh. <laughs> well, sometimes you, you like one one challenge of being a seminar writer is like Vincent has to come up with the way to create a connectedness between all these stories so he can write. The yeah. And so sometimes he has to kind of lean into that. And that's 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 all you can go go for. I still can't believe he managed to string together everything for Shakespeare. Um, when we did the Shakespeare Ultra Shorts, because that was just crazy. There were like five of them, and he had to yeah, find out to take them all, all, all like stapled together. That was something that I had always wondered because you know there was in, in you know request for submissions. There's not really a you know hey we're doing an episode of this theme. Can you write to this theme? It's send us whatever. I was like oh yeah. shit how 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 are they going <laughs> to connect this with anything <laughs> I, I i keep throwing all these obtuse shakespeare references into my stuff in the hope that the, the shakespeare folks will notice and say hey you should you should come over and, and do with this um i stole the title from the winter's tale specifically yeah. this specifically from the exit pursued by a bear scene which i thought was kind of funny mm -hmm. um but I, it, it's antigonus describing meeting his dead wife in a dream so i thought that worked out pretty good uh, I I can I can bet you that our dramaturge picked up on it. If he's not hip deep in Henry the Sixth right now, but uh, oh oh Henry the Sixth oh that's that, that's tough. Oh that one's challenging. Like like uh, like I I left I left as an, a director for Propendent Shakespeare to go in and do uh, a uh, do seminar and uh, Jeff Robinson immediately had to pick up Henry the Sixth and the uh, logistics of it are just staggering. So, um, kudos to him. Good, but good luck with some of that dialogue, man. That's, um, <laughs> well, I, the sixth is, is is not the best. True, true. But I'm <laughs> I'm voicing Talbot, so I'm. Uh, oh, nice. I got I got more dialogue than all the other characters combined. Nice. So, uh, but uh, you know, we've run to the end of the episode. Um, so we'll go ahead and sign off of the commentary. Um, I'm Adam Blanford, of course, the director for Seminar. Uh, with me was Cole Kozlov and uh, Logan Rapp. Thank and you. Thank, thank you, you both very much for joining us this evening, or joining me this evening. And uh, we hope to see more stories from you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Will do. I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording. <laughs>